technology shapes and influences every aspect of our lives today. And we're only beginning to scratch the surface of understanding how it will radically change the way we live and work in the future. Coming up... We need to be a lot more attentive to how systems in society work, including the machine learning systems. We need to record, be auditable, for what went in and what came out, and be able to ask continuously, did it work? You're listening to The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth, a Nokia original series. MIT professor Sandy Pentland is a busy man. When he's not guiding PhD students through uncharted terrain of machine learning and artificial intelligence, building the first computer wearables, or redefining a 216-year-old term, social physics, he's advising the World Economic Forum on how to keep our private data private and played a crucial role in GDPR, the data protection and privacy rules that a few years back led companies to spam you with requests for permission to keep spamming you. So it's no surprise the only chance I had to interview him before we visited his campus was while he was walking across the quad to his next appointment. Michael Hainsworth calling. How are you? Not too bad. We had a chance to talk about how we ensure artificial intelligence is truly intelligent and the risks associated with big data, bias in machine learning, and more. I always pre-interview futurismic guests before meeting them in person to ensure I ask the dumb questions before the cameras start rolling. Well, that sounds good for both of us. <laughs> Indeed, exactly. I, I saw something recently that you had done where you had pointed out that if you looked at the, the telephone data of people and you could uh, divine their income, uh, their, their place in society, so to speak, those who had um, greater connections with a variety of individuals were more likely to be in a higher income bracket than those who tended to keep with their own kind, as it were. Is that an accurate depiction? Yep, absolutely. No, it's one of the, one of the most sort of powerful findings that you see. And, and indeed, um, what you also see um, is that when people have a sort of set point for that and that sort of exploratory behavior, and there's a sudden change in, in that preference and how much they explore outside of their, their network, it's usually a sign that there's something really going wrong in there. Financial trouble, sickness, things like that. And in fact, you can use that to be able to uh, uh, have like an a early warning system for healthcare and, uh, and financial stuff. Are you suggesting that people who do expand beyond their existing circle, those are the ones that are where we can say, oh, there must be something wrong with them? People who have a, who have a sort of level of exploration and diversity, if you see that contract typically, right? Um, that means there's something wrong. <laughs> I, I put out a statement uh, as I was trying to figure out how to make all this come together. Uh, and confirm or deny this for me. Is it fair to say that your cell phone is the biggest source of data in the world? I think that's probably fair. Yeah, absolutely. Because it puts off data about you and your behavior constantly. And then the other thing is, is that it's by far the most ubiquitous device in the world. I mean, 
Facebook may have one and a half, even two billion people, but there are six billion cell phones. <laughs> I mean, it just dwarfs everything else. And the, the, the data that our phones are, are keeping, it's, it's not just who we're calling, who we're emailing, what websites we're surfing. Uh, I can imagine GPS location data is a critical component to that as well. You shouldn't say GPS location data, but location data, like what cell tower you're using. And then for more modern, higher-end phones, GPS stuff, yeah. Okay. Those are the reasons that there's so much privacy concern is that, you know, when you see these sort of patterns, uh, it really tells a great deal about your personal life, things that you don't want to have be available broadly. On the other hand, you know, that knowledge of who you're calling and where you're calling from is required, absolutely required to be able to make the phone call. (laughs) Okay. So, so, Here's this benefit where put artificial intelligence in everybody's pocket. We love it. It's spread faster than any other technology in, in human history. But uh, at the same time, it uh, reveals a lot of our behavior and our preferences in ways that have never been revealed before. And so it's really key that you protect that and, and treat it as valuable in order to avoid all sorts of bad consequences. How do we, though, uh, make anonymous that which presently isn't? Uh, for example, you could uh, anonymize um, the, the location and call data of a, a group of individuals, but based upon the location of those towers from where the calls originated and a variety of related type of location content, you could reverse engineer the anonymous nature of that data set and uh, essentially tie it right back to the individuals you got it from in the first place. Is that accurate? Yeah, and that's why, I mean, there's a number of very sort of technical computer science things people are working on, but the simplest approach is the one that's the most familiar. When you fill out a census questionnaire, you answer all sorts of questions that are intensely personal, but people don't worry about that because it's immediately aggregated to the neighborhood or city level, so, you know, uh, and when you aggregate it like that, so you say, well, in this neighborhood, several city blocks, you know, there's 3,000 people and they make an average income of whatever, that doesn't bother anybody because you can't say anything about any individual person. There's no personal data in it. It's when you get finer and finer grain that things get dicey. So that sort of census data makes perfectly good sense. It's quite safe. We've done studies with the UN and different countries about it. It it checks out. Um, And what's interesting is is most of the good that you get in terms of making better transportation systems, better public health systems, better design for government, right? Where where do you put uh, resources? Where do you not put resources? Uh, All sorts of things that we want to have happen can be done from neighborhood-level data. You don't need individual data. Oh, I would have thought that the greater the granularity of the information, the greater power and the more accurate the information. And the answer is very marginally. Um, so, so what happens is as you increase the spatial resolution, you go from the entire state to the city to the neighborhood, 
you get increasing uh, resolution uh, and increasing utility. But as you go beyond that to the individual level, you get very little less additional utility, um, but a great deal more danger in terms of, of, of privacy and security. So there's a sort of a sweet spot, which, you know, historically, you know, societies have developed this thing called the census and census maps. And that's their trial and error, but they got it basically correct. If you aggregate things at that level, it's really pretty safe. Um, and it's really pretty useful. But you can't do everything. So, you know, if I'm going to, like, monitor you for a medical condition, that requires individual-level data. But in that case, you can have a separate way of handling that data where you opt in, you know, you have only one person, maybe a doctor that can see it, that's it. But for most of the public purposes, most of the data for good sort of purposes, you don't need individual data. I think a lot of people are under the impression that the, the greatest source of data would be your Google or your Facebook posts. But at the same time, we're just putting the best version of ourselves forward. So that data has very limited use. Absolutely. So, so Facebook, uh, Twitter, things like that, those are your public face. They're what you want people to think about you. Very often, they're actually not very truthful. Um, you can tell things about people from that. It is something you'd like to protect, but it's nothing like knowing who you actually spent time with. Uh, that's a lot more uh, concerning, let's just say, right? Uh, Google, is, because people think that it's private, and in fact, Google's very good about making it private. I mean, Google is, you know, in this class of people, sort of a, a star because they immediately aggregate this stuff uh, for anything that gets out of your public, your personal little repository. Um, you know, uh, because people ask all sorts of embarrassing questions, it's pretty revealing too. But as I said, you know, Google goes, you know, I have to give them a gold star. You know, they've done a pretty good job for their search function. Now, they're not so good for things like Nest. I don't know if you want to get into things like this. Oh, I, I have two Nest thermostats and one doorbell, and I'm just waiting for the day somebody hacks into all of it and shuts off my heat. Yeah, I, I, I remember uh, I was in Davos at the World Economic Forum, and the guy that started Nest got up to speak, and he talked about how wonderful it all was and all that sort of thing. And then there was this gentleman, elderly gentleman from Germany that got up and said, you mean Google will know when I go to the bathroom? <laughs> and it was so indignant. Yeah, it was just like, and, and the Nest guy had never confronted European attitudes about privacy. And he was sort of dumbfounded, right? And it's like, well, no, we tried to, you know, he tried to talk his way out of it. Yeah, well, guess what? <laughs> Nest knows when you go to the bathroom. <laughs> How do you feel about how the Europeans have handled this with uh, the general data protection? Well, I was key in starting the discussion that ended up with GDPR, so it's a little bit of a, yeah. a grandfatherly or godfatherly attitude. You know, uh, legislation is like sausage making, they say. It's really true. I was there the night that they assembled the final bill for vote. Uh, the people that were assembling it were completely distraught because 
in the EU, countries can add clauses without any debate. And several countries had added clauses that contradicted everything, and it was a, a complete mess. But, you know, the fundamentals are right. The fundamentals are you ought to be able to control what's done with your data. You ought to know what's happening with your data. You ought to have the ability to opt out of it uh, should you not be happy with what's happening. That's the fundamental. And uh, it's going to be a lot of bumps in the road and screaming and yelling, but it's pushing us in the right direction. Who was it? Was it uh, an IBM programmer out of the 60s who came up with the term garbage in, garbage out? <laughs> How do we ensure that we're not getting garbage in and therefore in analysis of big data through AI algorithms or what have you, that we're actually getting anything but garbage out? Well, so the, uh, and then there's questions of bias and fairness and all those sorts of things, right? Um, and so we have a framework that we've developed that we're deploying at national levels in several places. And what it does is called open algorithms, where the code to be able to ask questions is open. You can see it, okay? And it has human oversight in the loop. So what the real answer to your thing is, you have to keep track of what it's doing, and you have to continually ask, does this make sense? Humans ask, does this make sense? And so what we do is we build tools to allow that question of, does this make sense? Is this what we want? Is this what we intended to be constantly monitored? And, you know, there really isn't any other way to do it, nor I think is there any way we would want to do it. We want this to be a a human system, not a computer system. To be a human system, it has to be understandable by people. Uh, it has to be something where, you know, occasionally it will run off the rails. Every All laws do it. All regulations run off the rails occasionally. That's why you have judges to appeal to. In the case of computers and data, you want that to be built into the system, not just an occasional appeal, uh, but something that's constantly monitored by all of the stakeholders. So how do you get the OPAL system applied to anyone who decides they want to build an AI? Well, that's going to require some level of regulation about how data is used, isn't it? So this is um, a government top-down approach to the tech industry? There's really, there's really two things. Like, I was just talking to the gentleman that... Uh, helped construct uh, privacy regulation in this country when it was part of the government. You know, you need uh, to have some top-down guidelines. You don't want to control it, right? But what you see is you see that in reaction to GDPR, companies like IBM and Microsoft are making systems that are like our open algorithms then, where the data isn't copied. It's not available for leaking everywhere where you can audit what's happening because that's the logical response to having Europe demand auditability and transparency is you begin offering systems. And, and when that happens, what you get is you get, you know, when somebody goes to the marketplace to buy something, uh, the thing that they defaultly get handles privacy and data ownership in a much better way than 
it does today. So it's not discrete regulation. That's actually regulation provoking a market that's much more respectful about it. Is that the full solution? Probably not. There probably also needs to be some tick behind the carrot. Uh, and, you know, it's really the same as with money. You know, you put money in things and the SEC tries to make sure that the thing you can put money in is not a scam. The banking oversight tries to make sure banks aren't doing stupid things. The way we run our whole society, there's a little bit of stick in the regulation, uh, some guidelines, and then you let people invent things in between. This sounds like a, a role for the United Nations more than on an individual government level, un- unless we want to have countries where there are bad actors um, taking advantage of, of, of the situation of a lack of oversight. Does the World Economic Forum and the United Nations have a role to play in ensuring that when we build this technology, we're doing so for good? As a board member of the UN Foundation's Global Partnership for Sustainable Development data, I can tell you, yes, they have a role, right? <laughs> <laughs> Similarly, work I do for the forum is, yes, they have a role. But the role that they have is in setting best practice, in encouraging people to see the opportunities that are the positive opportunities and discourage the ones that are negative. It's really much more a national or even local thing that needs to happen because the UN, the World Economic Forum, they don't make laws. They don't, like, meet out punishment. Right. But what you see happening is, is that if you get a law like GDPR in Europe and you have sort of equivalent things in this country, it's a patchwork, it's not as good, but there's a, there is a fair amount of... of privacy and anti-fraud regulation already and oversight, Uh, what that means is that manufacturers of software, of other sort of systems, uh, if they want to sell in Europe and the U.S., they're going to design things that that meet the standards. And then when somebody in another country wants to buy something, well, they're going to sell them the -the off-the-shelf thing, which meets the European and American standards. And you get standards of practice. There can be bad actors. There will always be some bad actors. Uh, if international relationships, like the World Trade Organization and so forth, discourage that, there'll be fewer of them. But the real thing is, is the market. You can't sell stuff. You can't buy services if the big markets are all privacy compliant. Ah, so this is your, your Adam Smith invisible hand of the markets ensuring that we're not getting smacked upside the head. Well, invisible hand. I mean, if you look at what actually happens, what people actually do in all sorts of different countries, you know, they buy what IBM sells. <laughs> <laughs> right. No one ever got fired for buying IBM. Yeah, I mean, you know, just realistically, right? And 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 if IBM and and Microsoft have to have their principal markets in, in Europe and the US, they're gonna make things that do a pretty good job. And so when you try to buy something from the middle of nowhere, you're going to buy something that does a pretty good job. Correlation is not causation. Uh, Can you even ensure machine learning systems aren't making connections that simply aren't there and that bad decisions are made as a result? You want to have human oversight, don't you? Right, but but is if, if I, I'm thinking about it, if, as a journalist, we try to remove bias from uh, any given story, but it's inevitable that a certain a- amount of it 
will filter in. In a, in a similar vein, data scientists or anyone who's building a, a big data-based algorithm, uh, if you're getting data out of it that you anticipated when you went into it, um, how are we going to ensure that we aren't just seeing what we want to see? And um, that, again, back to correlation is not causation. First of all, you want to step back and say, what are current systems like that have humans in them? You know, are judges unbiased? Are regulators unbiased? Uh, we don't keep accounts on what happens today. I remember being uh, at a talk about all the bias and bad things machine learning can do, and the justice minister from Kenya got up and said, you know, everything you say is true, but if you've seen the systems that we have in place today, almost anything you can do is going to do better. <laughs> that doesn't mean we can't do better yet. Uh, and the key is we need to be a lot more attentive to how systems in society work, including the machine learning systems. We need to record, be auditable, well, what went in and what came out, and be able to ask continuously, did it work? Is it what we want? Is it fair? Is it, is it going in the right direction? Because at the end, designing these systems, building these systems, um, is moving into territory that typically we don't fully understand. The, the contrast, though, is, is that if you look at how laws and regulations are made today, they're made on stories that my great aunt Edna told me. And I know Uncle Terry had this problem, and so we're going to make a law to make that illegal. Law today is not based on facts. It has never been based on facts. It's based on personal experiences, heuristics, and stories. It needs to become auditable, and as it becomes auditable, it'll be safe use machine learning. If the amount of data, though, is too vast for a human to cross-check, uh, how do we audit? Well, that's not true. You can audit the outcome, uh, decisions made. Does this person get a license? Does that person not get a license? Things like that. You have to ask, are we doing the correct decisions? If you're not getting the correct decisions, then there's something wrong and you need to go off and explore what's wrong, right? It has nothing to do with the size of the data. It has to do with, is it making good decisions? I used to have a girlfriend who was in quality assurance at a company, and she was the most hated person in the shop. You bet. <laughs> she, yeah, she would go down yeah. to the floor, and she would pull a pallet out of the production line, grab one box of those Tetra Pak drink boxes that the kids have for elementary school, mm -hmm. tests to make sure that that box was made correctly and that the chemicals used to make the box weren't rubbing off into the drinks and killing the kids. She, of course, couldn't test every single box. She would take a representative sample. Is that what you're talking about? No, because since these are data systems, you can test every single box non-destructively. So for the first time, you can get genuine quality control. Thank you so much for your time. I understand you've got to get off to your next appointment. So Great. Thank you very much. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. And with that, the good professor was gone. But he left lingering questions about how we advance a technology that is already starting to change the world, when we can call machine learning artificial intelligence, and what he thinks is next. We address those topics during our time together at the Status Center. I'm Michael Hainsworth. 
See you at MIT. See the future. Listen to what's next. Read about world-changing ideas. All by visiting futurhythmic.com. The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth is a Nokia original series.